Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. They're very bright minds there because the filtering process of a billion people is such that the people who make it to the workforce have gone through a lot. So you have a bunch of smart people that you can work with. So that's a huge positive working in India. But sometimes when you have too many smart people, it can also cause intellectual discussions and great discussions over months and nothing really is happening. And the big adjustment that folks who've come out of India, if they're able to make, which is, all right, how do I balance thinking and doing? So that's the big shift that you have to make. People are interconnected in India and there's an interdependence there that doesn't exist here. We've gone farther and farther away from that here in the United States. When you go there, there's just more of like a connectedness, a togetherness. Rich, poor, Muslims, Hindus all cohabitate. So for me, I think I envy the idea that there's just such an integration of that out of necessity. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. So by now, you know I'm going to India soon. In fact, that was last week's episode. And you also know I host another podcast, Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast, where we host candid mentorship-style conversations with fellow business leaders and entrepreneurs. Well, I decided to have a chat about India on that podcast, and well, Sharon and I are trying to fill up the weekly podcast content machines, we can actually relax in December. So here's a bonus India conversation with two more Indian friends of the pod, one of whom you'll recognize pretty quickly. On today's show, we're going to talk about India with our PNG alumni co-hosts, Sharad Lal and Rajiv Satyal. So as you know, I'm actually going back to India soon for the first time in nearly two decades. In fact, I might be over there when you hear this podcast. I'm going over there with my aging parents on what might be my last overseas trip with them, but I'm also taking my young daughter on her first overseas trip. She's half Indian, so this is but a part of her own mixed heritage. I've got a ton of anxiety about this trip, but I want to have no regrets. You see, while I'm Indian American, particularly from the North, uh, Punjab, I've not been back as often as most of the Indian diaspora. For me, it was just a family trip when I was six, another trip with my dad just before starting my career at PNG. And then a late 20 solo backpacking trip through South India while on assignment in Asia, just before moving back to Cincinnati. Over the years, a lot of things have kept me from going back, career, other travel experiences, starting a family. But when the opportunity to return to India arrived, I couldn't pass it up. But I am not sure what to make of this trip back to India. Back in the early 2000s, folks would say that India and China had gone through more change in the preceding 20 years than countries like America had gone through in 100 years. And now this is another 20 years later. India is an emergent superpower on the world stage. Some would argue the swing vote on the geopolitical map. 
with all the same sort of wonder and awe that people have romanticized over the decades. But now, also with all the social and political growing pains one would expect from such a colorful country. So I do what I always do. I decide to reach out to some of our alumni friends, particularly those who, like me, have a heritage or origin in India, but have spent more time in India than me, so I can get some learnings. However, this time around, we're lucky to have not one, but two PNG alumni co-hosts who are also of Indian origin. Rajiv Satyal is the funny Indian, a stand-up comic and entertainer based in Los Angeles, and my first far too many coffees at work friend. Rajiv, welcome back to the show. It is so great to be here, Raman, and I'm so excited to do this with you. <laughs> Thanks, man. And also, Sharad Lal is the curious conversationalist. He's a speaker, a trainer, and a coach based in Singapore, who I first met during my Asia assignment, and I've stayed in touch over the world of podcasting over the years. So, Sharad, uh, thanks for being a part of this. Thanks, Raman. Looking forward to this. Yeah. So, both of you guys have tons of really enriching and entertaining materials online beyond this podcast, which I'd encourage all of you folks to listen to. We'll put some links in the show notes. But as two of my Indian alumni friends, this is honestly a conversation I've been wanting to have for a while, even before this idea. So, let's get right into it. I'd love to start with both of your Indian origin stories. So, I guess the question to ask is, where in India are you from, uh, Rajiv? Cincinnati. I'm from Cincinnati, <laughs> India. <laughs> it's the southwest corner of Ohio. The subcontinent of Ohio. Subcontinent of Ohio with the other Indians, the other, the real Native Americans, I guess we could say. Look, my parents came here from Punjab in the early 1970s. So I am Punjabi, just like you. And I'm also Ohioan, not Alabaman like you. And Shard, you're a little more Indian than both of us. Uh, where in India are you from? So I grew up in a small town near Delhi. It's called Bareilly. And, and I went to boarding school. And then my family moved to Delhi. And like the two of you, I'm also Punjabi. And I spent the first 24 years of my life in India. Wow. You know, fun fact, I didn't know until I was 19 years old that I was Punjabi when my grandmother said something about it. <laughs> so I think I was 15 when I knew. Yeah. I was I was probably 10 uh, because I didn't live with my grandparents. So typically, if you grew up in India, you would know at two or three, but it took me a while. So yeah. not as long as you guys, but it took me a while. But why why so long though? Because you didn't live with your grandparents or it just didn't come up? It's, it's a little complicated. So I grew up in a place called Bareilly, which is in Uttar Pradesh. Mm -hmm. And the reason we rocked up there was because when my parents were leaving Pakistan, they grew up in what is Pakistan now, or oh, my dad was two years old at the time. Mm -hmm. And when he was leaving, the family was leaving, the train stopped in Bareilly, someone went to the loo and didn't get back onto the train. <laughs> so that part of the family kind of was around Bareilly. Decades of family history uh, altered because of a potty break. Yes, the potty break decided my future. So yeah, that, that was the story there. Well, and, and for most of our audience, I've, I've talked this with a few other guests on this podcast, India and Pakistan, you know, in 47 were separated by the British in something that's called partition. And that is a whole nother podcast that we're not going to get into. But because of that, a lot of North Indians have kind of this mixed origin. My dad was also born in Lahore. Oh, I don't think I knew that. Did I know that? Okay, sorry, not to jump in and host or co-host alongside you, but I'm just genuinely curious. Okay, I didn't know that. And by the way, Sharad, my dad also crossed the line of partition. So did your dad too, Raman? Yeah, yeah. So, wow. Three, well, it's three Punjabi you know, descendants. Yeah, of course, that's going to happen. Around the same time frame, though, also. Yeah, the other yeah. coordinate. I, I guess the other question, what was the first time that you went to India, Rajiv? How old were you? I was nine. I was born in 1976. I went in 1985. So I was nine years old. Okay. And Shard, you were born there. So I guess the question to ask is, when's the first time you left India? 
So first time I left India for good was when I was 24. This was after business school. Mm-hmm. My first job was with Procter & Gamble in Singapore. I've heard of them. I've heard of them. Yeah. And, and I haven't looked back since. So I've lived in Singapore ever since. Yeah. Okay. So now let's get into it. Like just childhood memories of India. Like, you know, I went when I was six. It's funny. I, I think the memories keep coming back more and more now that I see my kids. But like, I just remember. And since then, you know, that's probably where I caught the travel bug, where I started wanting to travel. But I've never felt so much cultural shock in my life, you know, going from the suburbs of Alabama to the streets of New Delhi, you know, sleeping on cots at my grandparents' house in Patel Nagar, like too many memories. It's almost like overpowering. Mm. But uh, for you guys, I mean, Shard, what was one of your earliest childhood memories growing up there? To, I just recalled a very clear memory, which is a little older than childhood, if I could share That's that. Fine. I was yeah, 16, 70, and my folks were in Delhi. And we'd moved to Delhi at the time, and my dad was doing some property transactions. He was selling some properties, buying some properties. Mm-hmm. So for three or four days, I would do these transactions with him. And at that stage, this was India in the early 2000, maybe 1998, 2000. We were carrying briefcases full of money, <laughs> like they show in the movies. Because the transactions were not based on checks at that time. And we were carrying briefcases of money every day. So once we do a transaction, I remember he would go to this place. And if people know Delhi well, GK1, we'd sit, we'd have a beer, we'd have butter chicken. And then we'd do the next transaction the next day, the next suitcase and do that. So this was a wonderful memory in the streets of Delhi, which was very typical of India at that stage. You know, okay, so I I have a, a pretty good story about stacks of money as well. But this is my trip to India. When I had just finished business school, I was about to start at Procter & Gamble. My dad and I went. And by this point, I'd been, I backpacked around the world. I'd been to Japan. I'd been all over Eastern Europe, et cetera, et cetera. I'm like, hey, dad, you know, how much cash should we take with us? And dad's like, don't worry, don't worry. You know, you land in Delhi at midnight in, in the summer. It feels like a hairdryer blowing at you in the face. We go to bed at my aunt's house. The next morning, he wakes me up at like five in the morning. He's like, Roman, come on, go, go, go. Get your backpack. So I unzip my Jansport, empty everything out. We take a tuk-tuk to Kanat Place to the Citibank building. And, you know, we go through the security with the guys with the guns and they take us up to the top floor. Dad gives them an account number and the guy on the plate takes it back and comes back literally with a platter full of stacks <laughs> of money, like drug dealer stacks of money. And we're with a Pepsi and a tea, of course. And we're shoving this in my backpack. And for the rest of the trip, for the two weeks, and we wandered around visiting other grad school buddies, family, friends, et cetera. We're paying for everything, just like bricks and bricks of cash. I understand that's not the case anymore. That won't be happening on this trip to India. Absolutely, absolutely. And I remember just to add to that, there used to be an ad just around the time when they were shifting mindsets of, uh, I think, a Citibank credit card Mm -hmm. where a guy goes on a date and is leaning on one side. And then they told him you can use a credit card instead of having stacks of money in your back pocket. So that's how they started the process of getting people in credit cards, I think, in 2000s. Uh, Rajiv, what's your drug dealer money story from India? <laughs> it's really funny you say that, actually. It's just so funny how you said, yeah, you you walk with a limp from all the cash and that that's a, you almost sound like a rapper. But I remember having the old Indian currency from a few years ago and I had it on me and I could have taken it to a bank here and I probably lost, I think I did the count at the time, the conversion rate, maybe about $270. I thought, no, I'll just take it over and I'll go to a smaller village outside a city and maybe this, you know, I say taco vendor because I'm so American, but this vendor, you know, this uh, vendor. Of, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those vendors, something like that, although I think of it as in the north. And I tried to pass those bills off. And by saying pass those bills off, you could tell obviously it didn't work. And he just kind of shook his head. He's just like, we don't take this cash as if it were drug money. So I lost a good chunk of change by not taking that. But 
I remember my first memory of India, it, like you're saying, it was overload as well, sensory overload. I do remember being in Shimla and the clouds coming in the window. I thought that was so wild to be in the mountains and seeing the wet streets and the leeches that would come out and being able to walk to a lot of things, which is really cool. And I remember this hill and I, I was sick for most of the time. I was there for eight weeks and I was dehydrated for six of them. So I wrote later that my soul yearned for the East, but my body craved the West. And I was just not built for it. I couldn't wait till we got to England and I could eat cereal with actual milk. And it was really, really hard for me to take to India. And, and I didn't go back for a long time. But there was a hill and everyone else had gone for a walk. And I was boohoo at home by myself. And I remember sneaking out of the house to run up that hill like Kate Bush. And I didn't. I, I went halfway up and I came back down because I thought I'd get in trouble. And sometimes when I'm not accomplishing a goal, even to this day, I, I see that hill. Not to, not to wax too metaphorical, but that is still a memory of mine from India when I was nine years old. It's great. So Rajiv, how many times have you been back to India? I think now about 10 because I won in 85. Then I didn't go again until 02. Mm -hmm. And we can bookmark that and I can come back to that. But then I went again... I think I was the first person ever to do an hour of stand-up comedy in India. I think I can make that claim. That was in 2009 in Bangalore. Then I went again in 2012, 2013, 15, 16, wow. 17, 18, 19. I think that was it. Wow. Okay. So I'm going to have to get a lot of advice from you then. And Shard, I mean, since you've left, how often do you go back? Because Singapore is a hop, skip, and a jump. It's not the 15-hour flight that Rajiv and I have to take. Yeah. Typically once or twice a year at least. Yeah. Uh, of course, COVID was, uh, was, was different, but we're back to once or twice a year now. And is it always back to Delhi or do you pop around the rest of the country? It's always back to Delhi because, you know, when you go back, the aim is to spend as much time with family and people around. So I haven't really done too much of travel in India since I've been out. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Um, I think what most people don't realize about India is... If you talk about like the diversity of America, right, like the difference between L.A. and New York and Alabama and Cincinnati and Dallas versus Houston, uh, you know, Atlanta versus Athens, just um, it is night and day, like town to town, state to state, everything flips on its head when you travel in India. And my second trip, we left the confines of Delhi, right? We went down to Bangalore to see a grad school buddy. We, we popped around a lot. My last trip there, I didn't go any to the north because I'd worked with so many South Indian people at PNG. So I just got recommendations on what to see in all the towns, you know, from Taruchi to Pondicherry and everything in between. I, I guess, how do you describe like the differences like between, to, to a non-Indian, how would you kind of explain the differences between Delhi and the rest of, you know, Delhi and Mumbai, Delhi and Chennai, et cetera, for, for what you guys know or where you've been around the country? So I think the first thing you will notice is uh, just the people start looking different as you go to various parts of India. Yeah. So they look a little different in the South. They look very different in the East. Many people are not aware, but in the East, there's a whole different set of looking people. So they look different. That's the first thing. Languages are different. So it's not dialects. Of course. They're different languages. And I think the, each state, almost every state has its own language. Scripts are different. It's not the same Devagri Indian script. Food starts getting different. So... It's so different, but the one thing or maybe two things that unite India, one is cricket and the World Cup is on there. Everyone brings it on for cricket and everyone's united for it. And probably the second thing could be films, Bollywood, and I think there's a South Bollywood as well. So 
those are the two things that unite India, but otherwise there are many, many differences. Yeah, I would agree that I think cricket is the thing now because as the other, you know, Bollywood and now there's Tollywood and Mollywood, I think even, and all of these ones that don't necessarily identify with being Bollywood. And the reason I could speak to that is because I've hosted the GQ Men of the Year Awards a couple of times. So they were very, very clear to make sure that I didn't use the word Bollywood out of place. And say Bollywood when you just mean Indian cinema Mm -hmm. and make sure you be very careful with that word, because especially if you're talking about the South, it's almost like when I was in Poland and I said, you know, I'm here in Eastern Europe and they all corrected me. They're like, you're in Central Europe. I go, will people get offended? They go, no, they will just think you don't know where you are. You're not in Eastern Europe. You're in Central Europe. But Americans see East and West when we think of Europe. We don't really think of Central Europe. But Polish people, especially in Warsaw, think of themselves as Central European. So if you say Eastern European, they think you think you're in Bulgaria. Other than Delhi, which I would imagine we all have spent a significant amount of time in, like, what's the other city in India you probably spent the most time in or you have the most experience in? Uh, for, for me, I've, I've spent time in Calcutta as well. That's where I went to business school. Mm-hmm. And that's a slightly different part where it's a lot more intellectual and artistic. Mm-hmm. It hasn't developed as much as the other cities like Mumbai and Delhi that have developed with the development of India. Mm-hmm. Mumbai, of course, is the commercial capital it takes some getting used to. So it's it's narrow pathways, many people together, but it has a hustle like no other city. So it's a little bit like New York, if if, if I can put it that way. Yeah, I, I've, I've been, as I'm preparing to go, and I'll be going to Mumbai for the first time, but spending a lot of time in Delhi. And the more I study, like, you know, where are we going to go? What are we going to see, et cetera? I get a very vibe that Delhi is LA and Mumbai is New York. It's like surrounded by water. It's tight. It's compact. It's the cultural capital. And Delhi's kind of like the economic political capital, which I guess that doesn't translate to New York, LA. But. I would say Mumbai is the economic capital. Delhi's political. Mm-hmm. Uh, Delhi could be a little more artistic because it's got the Mughal architecture and it's got a whole heritage of uh, Mughal stuff. Yeah. Uh, but but Mumbai is where things get done a lot more professional. Yeah. There is a strong rivalry between the two, yes. for sure. I, I've noticed that spending time in both cities and in a way that LA and New York don't have because. L.A. thinks of itself as a rival to New York, but New Yorkers just don't think of L.A. that much, you know, and that's how you know it's not a rivalry. It's the same thing with San Francisco. It's like NorCal loves to hate on SoCal. We're not really thinking about San Francisco down here much. So have fun, guys. Hate away. And we to San Francisco is New York to us. Yeah. Where else have you spent a lot of time? Is it Mumbai kind of when you're going back for work a lot, Rajiv? Yes, I would say Mumbai... Delhi, Bangalore are sort of the tier one city. Sharad, do I have that right? Is there another one in that? Or are those the three? Calcutta, tier, Calcutta three? comes in the metros and Chennai. Yeah. Yeah, I think of the, are those tier, they're also considered tier ones? So I think the, 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 the tiering keeps changing, but there were four metros at some stage, which was Delhi, Chennai, Bombay, and Calcutta, so mm-hmm. different parts of the country. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Bangalore was the new city 20 years back that that became from a from a retirement village, it became an IT hub and it's become a very, very vibrant city. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, Hyderabad and a few others have come up, mm-hmm. which again, I don't know the classification, but they're as good as the metro kind of cities. I've been to all of those places and some of them only one time, like Chennai, I think Calcutta twice. And I'm also really careful to characterize a city because cities are such big things. And it really depends on your experience there. So I would say the only three American cities I really know are Cincinnati, New York, and LA. And I've been, I've been to Chicago 200 times, but I'd still be like, do I know Chicago? I'm like, well, I do, but I don't know. I don't really know the geography of it that well. And I've been there 200 times. So 
I'm loath to make any characterizations about the cities, except as a comic, you have to get to know that stuff fast. And so quickly, you'll get a sense of like, oh, what do Mumbikers think of Delhi? And, you know, what do people in Bangalore think of people in Chennai or the places and stuff like that? So you get quickly to what people think of the other cities and what they think of their own city. It does crack me up that almost every city in India calls itself the cultural and artistic capital. (laughs) That seems like a very Indian thing to do. Yeah. The one-upmanship of the aunties, at least for me growing up in the States. Well, okay. So we've we've touched a little bit. Talk to me about working in India. So you both had very different experiences going back to India. Sharad, you for your family, and I would assume some business as well. But Rajiv, all those years that you just ratcheted off were because of your entertaining career. Are there any stories from those work trips back that are just so uniquely Indian? I think when Hari Kondabolu and Azra Usman and I were in a bookstore in Calcutta, Kolkata now, as they say, it was the quintessential Indian experience because we happened upon this bookshop run by this couple. Raman, I thought of you, I think, even then, because this is so your jam. And... They served us chai and talked about the city and how it had changed. And we were going through books. I found a book called Addicted to War about the United States. And I actually have it. I bought it. It's a cartoon book about American militarism. So we had heavy political discussions mixed with light stories and just one of those roving conversations. And my dad was with us and he was down for it. But after a while, I was like, let's go see some tourist traps, as I would call them. And... I said to my dad, I said, there's no better experience we're going to have than this. I understand you want to zoom out and go wide. We're zoomed in and deep. And of course, I was talking to my dad this way, just like how Raman once told his dad, 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 just top line it, just top line it, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> you can't take the PG out really of a person. Right? You. Yeah, yeah. yeah you, you, can't, you can't use PGism on, on an uncle, especially when that uncle is your dad. <laughs> what about you, Shard? Like, what's, what's going back for work been for you? I think what I find very good, no, no story comes to mind, is they're very bright minds there. So people are very smart because the filtering process of a billion people is such that the people who make it to the workforce have gone through a lot and their minds are very smart. So you have a bunch of smart people that you can work with. So that's a huge positive working in India. But sometimes when you have too many smart people, it can also cause too many conversations that go nowhere. So that's the frustrating (laughs) part that can happen where you're having intellectual discussions and great discussions over months and nothing really is happening. So that to me is my experience. And the big adjustment that folks who've come out of India, if they're able to make, which is, all right, how do I balance thinking and doing? That's when you can have the option of becoming somebody like Sundar Pichai or, or, or the big guy. So that's the big shift that you have to make. Yeah. What's one of the most interesting things that you learned in India? You know, it it can be a tactical thing, like bring a backpack when you go to the bank (laughs) or, you know, or it could be, you know, George Harrison learning the sitar. Like uh, on that spectrum, what's something that you've taken away from your time in India? Maybe I can go first from a business standpoint, since you were talking, this was back in, in, in 2000. It's the hustle and looking for the opportunity because you need to do that growing up in India. So in the workforce, I remember when I was, uh, maybe just summer interning in a friend's, uh, in my dad's friend's company. Yeah. Uh, and I was doing accounts and my neighbor was looking to buy a computer and there was a computer vendor in the company at the time who was selling computers at corporate deals, which were a lot cheaper. And then I went to the neighbor and gave him a price in between the price that he was getting in the market yeah. and what this corporate deal was giving. And then I made like a 5,000 rupee profit. But the neighbor 
benefited. So did the corporate guy and so did I. And I was like 18, 19 years old. And I wasn't the exception. Many people were doing that. Yeah. So there's this thing of always looking for opportunities. And maybe it's a Punjabi thing. Maybe it's a corporate India back in 2000 thing where you're looking for opportunities, looking to hustle and looking to do stuff. So that's an experience I've taken here as I've been an entrepreneur where you have the mindset for looking for opportunities. You know, it's funny, whenever I've traveled the world, you know, the things you try to understand before you hit the ground, you know, do you tip, do you not tip? How do you say bathroom, et cetera? But also, do you haggle or not in the country? And it's obviously um, a very exuberant yes. It, it's, it's expected to, to go back and forth on a deal to find an angle, et cetera, in India, which, you know, sometimes I just don't have the energy for it. It's exhausting. <laughs> Rajiv, what about you? Any lessons uh, or, or kind of like things that you've kind of taken away from your time in India? You know, a lot of it is just really, you know, subjalta, as they say, you know, everything goes, and everything walks, everything moves. And there's a cohabitation there that is enviable. And my parents would often talk about the United States as a very isolated country and mm-hmm. isolated, certainly, you know, geographically and part of why we have what we have. But for me, I think it is this idea of I've come to realize later in life what that means, that America is such an individualist place. And what has it ultimately gotten us? Whereas people are interconnected in India and there's an interdependence there. There's an interdependence there that doesn't exist here really, I I would really say at all. And it's gone more and more in that direction away. We've gone farther and farther away from that here in the United States. When you go there, there's just more of like a connectedness, a togetherness. People, I'm not saying everybody helps each other and it's all kumbaya. That's not what I'm saying. But they're connected and they have to physically touch each other. I mean, it's it's so crowded and there's so many, you know, rich, poor, all cohabitate, Muslims, Hindus. I mean, there's this idea of everyone just has to kind of make it work on not a small piece of land. But I think it's 12 times as densely populated as the United States. And so because it's like four times the population and a third of the landmass. And so and it may be five times the population now. I haven't kept up. Just overtook China. I know it's now the world's most populous country. Correct. So for me, I think I envy that the idea that people will drop things and help you and come pick you up at the airport or whatever else it is and just kind of intermix we talk about work-life balance here but when we see it when we say that we still mean keeping them separate whereas there i think there's just such an integration of that out of necessity and i'm not really built for that especially after being here for so many decades or my whole life rather Mm -hmm. which is so many decades i don't think i could go live like that now but i think i got it all wrong (laughs) shard as someone who's more indian than rajiv is that accurate or not that's accurate. And, and I think it's good to see both sides of the picture because I completely agree with Rajiv. There's a huge value to community where people drop things and, and come for you. But isn't, isn't that only if you know them? Like if you're a friend of a friend or you're my friend's co-worker's younger brother, you don't do that for a stranger in India is what I've learned. But no one's a stranger there, right? To Rajiv's point, because <laughs> everyone's living together. So you will always be somebody's friend yeah. and there's a community available. But on the flip side, there is pressure to conform. Mm. Uh, because if you want to be someone different, people don't like it. So even like in, in, in let's say the Western world has brought in things like inclusion, mm-hmm. being unique, that becomes difficult in this kind of society. If you want to be different from others, then being part of the community and accepted becomes different. So there's other challenges to it. So I guess it's the balance of the two. And, and that's where 
I'm also struggling and people are trying to figure out what's the balance of having a community, but also having your individuality. Have you seen that, Ashard, as someone who kind of left as a young adult, but you go back and you have friends who are still there? Like for Rajiv and I, it's the friends who are still at P&G, who are still in the Midwest in Cincinnati. And we do have conversations with them. We can kind of see the difference in our perspective, Rajiv and I being more entrepreneurial than big corporate. But so as a guy who, you know, grew up there, went to school there, began his career there, but then left, when you go back and talk to the people who stayed, what's the kind of difference? Is it is it that not needing to conform because you're not in the mix as much? So I think the difference is a little bit, and again, it's it's ironic a little bit of what Rajiv said. India, I feel, is gets insular because it's such a big country. And I and I know you talked about the US being insular. You can be in India itself and experience a whole life and diversity in life. So when you go back, and the news is pretty much about India, everything is about India, and that itself is huge. Mm. So when you go back, that's the big difference where in a country like Singapore, because you don't have too much of a choice, you have a better understanding of what's going on in the world. And the global perspective is, I think, a little more diverse. That's where you disconnect a bit. But I think with a lot of the people who've been out, we try and focus on, okay, we're going back to India, we're going back to a nostalgic part. Let's connect on that mm. and deepen our bonds on that part of us. Uh, because there are differences that we see, but let's focus on what works for us. Rajiv, something I've always believed about India when I try to explain to my American friends is India is the one country in the world that is more America than America. Do you agree with that kind of idea? Whether it's the capitalism, the hustle culture, the diversity, et cetera. That's a great statement. I'd have to really turn that over in my heart and mind and soul before I could give you an answer. I do think it is very democratic in many ways. So to your point about capitalism and democracy, I do think that the unique thing about the United States, because I've been really down on the U.S., as you and I know, because we've talked about this a lot, but there are a couple of things recently where I'm going, okay, you know what, maybe this place doesn't suck so much. And one of the things is, you know, we did come up with these vaccines within five months, and, and we've vaccinated 80% of the population, despite all of the blowback and people saying they didn't want to do it. All the noise. 80% of people got vaccinated, and we came up with those vaccines because we're America. F yeah. And we ran the largest election we'd ever run in this country during COVID. And it was a free and fair election. And that's not a partisan statement. That's unbelievable that we were able to do that. It's not the magnus, uh, the uh, the scale of the Indian election, because it's obviously a lot more people. So I'm not comparing it to that. But given the circumstances, it was amazing. And also, we are freer. I think that, you know, in the newsroom, when Jeff yeah. Bridges, Jeff Daniels, I always get the mix up, Jeff Daniels goes on his anti-American rant, and he says, Denmark, Canada, Japan, they all have freedom. It's like, yeah, but India has 12 restrictions on free speech. In the United States, you really can say whatever the F you want, as I censor myself, but you really can get away with saying a lot, way more than you can in India, way more than really any other place. And finally, I've been saying this in my standup recently, that ours is the only country in the world that has this much diversity. Because when you go to France, you have Paris, you don't even have Lyon, you don't have Cannes, you don't have Nice. In Spain, you have Barcelona and Madrid. And no other country do you have a place where you have 15 to 20 cities, Seattle, Miami, New York, San Francisco, Cincinnati even, that have that level of diversity, white, black, Latino, Asian, People, to some extent, getting along, but at least we're the ones who are trying to make it work and no other countries like that. So 
as down as I get on the United States, I do kind of go, okay, I do see what American exceptionalism is about. I don't think India does diversity like America does. And I don't think any other place does. But you don't think there's, um, with India, and I want to be careful about this text part because I'm going to be on the ground there soon. There's an Indian exceptionalism. There's an Indian nationalism. I'm not saying other countries don't have that nationalism. And maybe I'm more attuned to it because I'm paying more attention to the headlines because of my parents or the kind of arguments that the generations of the diaspora are having. I mean, there's been a lot of change in India in recent years, you know, and again, similar, we're not immune to this in the U.S. And, but it's causing a schism between generations of, you know, Rajiv, you and I, and what our friends are saying in popular culture and uh, what our parents believe. Mm. And I can only imagine what's going on intergenerationally over there or Sharad with you who have left and your thoughts on it and your friends who are back. I don't know. Like, I, I think a lot of the problems and opportunities that we have in America are almost like amplified to just another degree in India, for better or for worse. Uh, any thoughts or takes on that? So I think that a few things to it. So firstly, I think as a leader, since Modi's come in, he's actually helped the country do a lot in terms of infrastructure development, putting India on the world stage. So I would say for the first time, and I've been sitting out, so it's easy to see what's going on inside. For the first time, I've seen people in India, like my friends and others, having pride in being an Indian. Mm -hmm. That rarely happened. We all wanted to be Westerners and stuff growing up. So for the first time, and there's effort which has happened over the last 10, 15 years, where we know we can do things. Indians can send people to the moon, not people, Indians can, can, can find water in the moon and have the option of finding water in the pool, in the moon and doing all things. But there's pride. That's the first thing. Now, what that has also done is questioning what India was at independence. And at independence, India was a, called out as a secular country. Mm -hmm. And now there's a little bit more of Hinduism. Mm -hmm. There are people on two sides of the fence and there are all kinds of arguments, but there's a big shift. Mm -hmm. And in the shift of India from being called out as a secular country to being a little more Hindu-oriented, a little tough on the minorities, that's where I think a lot of polarizing is happening. So while there is good pride, there's also issues around religion, which is a very dangerous space to play in. Yeah, and just to kind of like step back, I mean, the religion in India is so diverse itself. Like Hinduism is, of all the world religions, which I've spent time studying, there's infinite, you think there's infinite variations of Christianity and Protestantism. Like, good Lord, you go 10 miles in India and the temple's different and the, the ceremony is different. So, but I guess maybe that's the unifying thing. Like we all have this, we all, I mean, the same way America fashions itself as a Christian nation, even though we, it depends. There, there's two sides of the argument too. Are we a secular nation? Or are we a Christian nation? You it, it, and, and some of it's legal and some of it's cultural, to Charlotte's point. And, you know, obviously there are Christians, Muslims, Jews, non-believers in India, but it's 86% Hindu. And I sometimes think, what does really unite the North and the South? Because Charlotte's point, so many things are different. I remember I performed at an event. It wasn't a Microsoft event, but I think it was like a Microsoft supplier event or something. And all of the folks are from Chennai. And I'm like, wow, this just doesn't even feel like I'm amongst my people because the language, the chattering is different. The food is different. The way they're conversing is different. I'm like, I may as well be white or black. I don't know that I'm, I relate to these folks any more than those folks might. And so it's Hinduism. Hinduism is sort of that thing that connects North and South and East and West that not to say everybody's Hindu, they're not. But 86% of 1.4 billion people is a lot of people. And you're surrounded by countries other than Nepal, 
and maybe the Maldives, I think, a little bit, but most of the countries are Muslim around India. So it is different from the United States in that, yes, it's a quote unquote Christian, Judeo Christian nation, but you have Canada, which is also Christian. Well, I mean, you can't, you can't, you can't walk around America and not feel that you're in a Christian country. And I say this as a non Christian. And same thing in, you'll see churches. Yeah. And same thing in India. You, yeah. You'll see the mandap or the temple everywhere you go, right? Yeah, totally. You'll see Jesus or you'll see Santa, which obviously isn't Christian, but. You'll you'll see that sort of a thing. Just we took our, our son to go see Halloween decorations. There's a church at the end of that street. There's a church at the end of this street. And Burbank isn't even necessarily. We're in L.A., not in the South or yeah. even in Ohio. So it's a part of the Christianity is a part of the culture. It's as part of the culture. Hinduism is part of the culture, yes. the fabric of the country. If you're not Christian in this country, you're still an other. And if you're not Hindu in India, you're still an other. And that's just a statement of statistics. That's not to make you feel otherized. It's quite literally the case that you were probably the only brown kid in your class. Yeah, you were. You probably were. A lot of us were. I'm going to shift gears a little bit. So, I mean, selfishly, I'm finally also going to Mumbai, like a place I spent zero time in. You know, this is exciting for me, not just because it's a new Indian city, because it's arguably, as, as we discussed, one of the capital, the cultural capitals of India, which is, you know, also it's a world city. So I got, I got to ask both of you guys, like, give me the cheat codes. What is something I need to do or see while I'm in Mumbai? While you're in Mumbai, I just love the ability to hop in and out of an auto rick and just go to different restaurants and shops and bars and intersperse that with Indian stuff and Westernized stuff. And you're in Bandra and you're able to just kind of hop. And that's a very specific part of India and very specific part even of Mumbai. But I thought that was just really cool being able to just hop in and out of places and grab a slice of pizza and then grab a dosa and all the things that you can do there that you can't do many other places. Of course, there's the queen's necklace, and that's still a problematic term. But the way that the lights shine around there and taking the sea link and seeing as much of the city as you can, I think is pretty great. I'm missing, of course, a lot. There's just a lot to see in Mumbai in a day, day and a half. But I think just feeling that city, it's got an energy to it that I don't think you can miss at all. Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm with Rajiv. Of course, there are many things like you can take the train, which is, uh, again, an experience by itself, take auto rickshaws, but it's the experience of trying different things. And Bandra, a part of Bombay, is very different from other parts of Bombay. And every part has its own little culture. So just soaking it in, soaking the culture in, walking the streets, talking to people, feeling the energy. I think that is the biggest thing Bombay has to offer. I think Canvas Laugh Club is still there. Go to a comedy club while you're there. I would highly recommend it because you love comedy, Raman, and nothing is probably going to tell you more about the fabric of a city than the comedians mm. doing crowd work with the audience, especially the ones who are going to do it in English. Make sure you go to those shows and they'll pick on different people from different parts of the city. You'll get a sense, oh, you live all the way in Navi, Mumbai. You're, you're in Andheri. How did you even get here? Stuff like that. You'll really pick up on it very quickly. And comics tend to go to the same tropes, especially the ones who are just starting out. But you'll really get a sense of the art of that country very quickly if you just hit a couple of stand-up shows. Of course, I'm saying that selfishly to support the art form, but I think you'll enjoy it. Nice. So when you guys now go back to India, what's one of the first things you do or look forward to? Kind of like the way you go get graders when you're back in Cincinnati. Hmm. I think butter chicken on the side of the road is pretty darn good to get. Just a big pot of it when it's it's steaming. And well, making sure it's fully cooked, of course. But yeah, I, I think that the street vendor food, you got to be a little careful from time to time. But if it's cooked thoroughly, you'll be fine. And I know you love eating food from around the world. And you've been to so many countries. I think you'll enjoy that. Yeah, so I think food is good. The, you'll also be going when the Cricket World Cup is on. And even if you don't like cricket, 
uh, being in India, even if you're not in the city where the game is going on or in the ground, just going to one of these places where they have a big screen and watching it, that's a phenomenal experience because you'll see the emotions, especially if you watch an India game. So that's what I look forward to. I I, re, I just got back from India yesterday and I, I watched a few games with my old buddies and, and that was just such a phenomenal experience watching it in India. Nice. What's a film, book or TV show that speaks to you about India? So I think Sacred Games, which uh, Rajiv mentioned, is a great show. I would also say there's a show called Made in Heaven, if it's a little bit more of in Delhi, and they push the boundaries quite a bit. It's a little exaggerated, but it'll give you a sense of where India is right now versus the perception that people have. I think obviously The Simpsons. They have a guy on there that apparently is from <laughs> India, and he just it's a perfect accent from an Indian guy, and it's just so it's so real. I hear there's a documentary about that. I hear there's a documentary about it made by a great comedian. Uh, so, yes, I I think, look, I mean, you know, I hate to say the namesake because it's so generic to say that as an Indian who grew up in America, but that book was great and the movie drove me to tears. I mean, I think Irfan Khan is, in rest in peace, one of the great actors that we've ever seen. You know, it's funny. I uh, I read that book my first year at P&G and you read the book and you're like, that's me, that's my life. And then I saw the film and because of, the late Irfan Khan, I was like, that's my dad. That's my dad's yeah. life. Mm. I, yeah. I read the book from the son's perspective. I saw the film from the dad's mm. perspective. So well said. That, that's so well said. Remember it always. I <laughs> just broke down. I just, I became a fountain. I was like, this is so, man, this is so touching. That's I mean, when they didn't have a camera, right? Yeah. We, we didn't have a camera. And he said, put in your memory and remember it always. Yes. Was that the one? Yes. Oh, gosh. I, I'm tearing up now thinking of it. It was just so powerful. Other than the late Irfan Khan, who's someone in India that you would want to get coffee with or talk on a podcast with? Amir Khan, probably. Amir Khan has done some very, very cool things in terms of pushing the boundaries of... Explain, the, explain them to people. In the Indian cinema. He's an actor, but also a producer, and his films have tackled... He's done the, the blockbuster films as well, but he's really been the guy, maybe the Sean Penn or someone like that, who's kind of like pushed the boundaries of what cinema could be and covering issues socioeconomic issues, political issues in a way that I don't think really had been done. I mean, there have been there have been bits and pieces of it, but you needed a mainstream person to push it forward. That's not to impugn all the people who had done that good work. But because he had such a platform, you so rarely see somebody anywhere with that kind of success tackle those issues. Sharad, you probably know more than I, but I would say Amir Khan is one of those guys for sure. Yeah, and Amir Khan embodies with great power comes great responsibility because he, he's done that. He's used his power. I love cricket, so I would love to have coffee with uh, MS Dhoni, who was the Indian captain, who probably was one of the, he had the toughest mentally strong mind. And when you're playing for India and you have a billion people supporting you and, and knowing that you're going to win every time, uh, expecting that you're going to win every time, the pressure is huge. And I think he was one of the few guys who handled the pressure well and took India to great levels. So I'd love to have coffee with him. That's great. Well, guys, this has been such a fun conversation. So I have to leave you with one last selfish question. What's one final piece of advice or a challenge you'd give for someone like me or anyone else who's getting ready to go back to India? I would say go with the flow. It's difficult to control things in India because things just happen. And even for folks who've grown up in India and gone like me to the Western world and or gone to Singapore, which is a little more developed, and then come back to India, we forget that trying to control is only going to cause problems. So just go with the flow <laughs> and you'll enjoy the experiences. So that's the one advice I'd give you. I'd agree with that. I had 
a friend who's from India and she had said, living in India is like spending your life at the DMV. And I thought that was so well said. And as someone from India, she had the right to say that more than I probably do quote it and say it on stage as I do shamelessly. But I thought that was great. I could not agree more with Shara. It's it's true. Just go with the flow. Be ready for an afternoon at the DMV, you know, and and balance it with taking your headphones off and being there and talking to people and just immersing yourself. But don't feel bad if you have to put your headphones on and need some Western comforts. And, you know, you can't expect yourself to just kind of, you know, fully immerse yourself and be completely comfortable. Like that's that's probably uncomfortable for them too. So remember who you are. It's a balance. You know, but do, you know, make hay while the sun shines while you're there. Do as much as you possibly can. You can sleep when you're dead. That's what I say. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. My first trip to India was when I was six and my daughter's first trip will be when she's seven. And so it was such a um, foundational trip for me. And like, I'm not trying to put the pressure on her trip. Like it takes five or 10 years of unpacking after the trip, but it's it's one I I hope to have no regrets about going. So guys, I, I genuinely appreciate you taking the time to kind of share your thoughts, experiences, and learnings from me. So Sharad, Rajiv, thanks for joining. Thanks for having us. Namaste. Thanks for having us, Raman. Great conversation. Thank you. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us. Hi, mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.